Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island, pairing beer and music since 1988. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois. Listen critically, enjoy responsibly. What do you love about music? To begin with? Everything. Putting on a great show is the most important thing you can do. One great rock show can change the world. Welcome to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis, the pop music critic at the Chicago Sun-Times. And I'm Greg Kite. I write about rock and roll for the Chicago Tribune. Tonight on the world's only rock and roll talk show, we've got two big albums by uh, artists who we haven't heard from in a while. Pearl Jam, remember those guys? Alternative no. rock icons? Yeah, they've been away for four years. They finally got a new album out, their eighth album. Much anticipated. Everybody thinks, hey, Pearl Jam's back. We're going to find out tonight whether their new music's any good. And Bruce Springsteen making a left turn. He's recording an entire album of folk songs, either written or popularized by Pete Seeger. Plus, we've got a live performance and some chat with New York City indie rock darlings. Clap your hands, say yeah. They've sold something like 100,000 records just by putting their music out on the Internet and then going down the post office mailing people CDs. Kind of an inspiring story. But first, as always, we have some music news. Neil Young with the Payola Blues, and we're going to be hearing more from uh, Neil Young in a few moments. He's got a new record out that we're going to be talking about, but uh, more to the point... Paola, the revelations just keep coming, Jim. We have been following the story for years on Sound Opinions. Elliot Spitzer, the New York State Attorney General, has been investigating the record companies for their role in paying off radio stations to play their records. Now the federal government has jumped in. Major step in this uh, investigation. A little late to the game, no? Oh, yeah. I mean, a little late to the game, to say the least, because Spitzer's been on the ball for about three years now. But now now it's like prostitution. You can't have a crime without both the hooker and the john. So in New York, they were going after the record companies for paying out goods and services in exchange for airplay. Now what are the feds doing? The Federal Communications Commission is going after the big radio corporations, the other end of this bargain, the ones who are playing the records in exchange for this revenue stream coming from the record companies. Now, Spitzer, we should point out, was successful in his investigations, uh, basically got the record companies to admit, yes, we are doing this. Sony paid $10 million in fines. Warner Brothers paid $5 million in fines as a result of the Spitzer investigations. Now the FCC is saying, okay, we're going to go after the four big radio corporations, Clear Channel, CBS, Citadel, and Intercom. have all been targeted. So this is the biggest payola probe since the congressional hearings of the 60s. People may associate the word payola with the disc jockey Alan Freed, who was literally taking money directly from record company guys to play Good records in, in, yeah. in most cases, but he was still getting paid to play them, and his career was uh, brought down, and, and, and the radio stations had to rethink how they did this. Basically, now saying, you have these you corporate... can't take cash from record companies. Right, right. It is not nice. We'll see where this goes. Just because they've uh, decided to investigate the four major radio companies doesn't mean they are, in fact, going to prosecute them and find them. But it's a uh, major, yes. Remember major the investigation step. into Ticketmaster? Yeah. That exactly. went far, yeah.
Ah, talking about business as usual, Greg, in the music industry, you and I covered the alternative movement pretty much from its inception through its end, early 90s being the heyday. And, you know, I mean, it was there in the name. It was supposed to be alternative to business as usual. It is proving to have been anything but. And we have a bunch of announcements just going to show that the alternative era bands were certainly not above uh, becoming the big, bloated corporate behemoths that the predecessors uh, like Aerosmith were. That was Alice in Chains coming in. Alice in Chains lead singer Lane Staley is, of course, one of the victims of the 90s uh, alternative explosion, much like Kurt Cobain. He's now dead. That is not stopping. <laughs> Alice in Chains from returning to the road, reuniting the surviving members, Jerry Cantrell and Mike Inez, those guys from Seattle, are getting back together, and uh, they're hitting the road. So, you know, doesn't matter. Much like Judas Priest, Rob Halford's not around. Doesn't matter. We'll hire another Yabo, right? Smashing Pumpkins are back in the studio. We've been talking about this for a while. We still don't know. Who the heck's in the band? You know, Billy Corgan, pretty much the day his solo album came out last year, summons you and I to the palatial <laughs> estate of the Head Pumpkin and says, guess what, boys? I'm putting back the Smashing Pumpkins. Okay, fine. Who's in the band, Billy? I don't know. I can't say. <laughs> he's still not saying. He's saying he's doing new music. Who knows? I mean, it's kind of like Yes. You know, remember when Yes uh, yeah. hired the Buggles? And had, like, half of Yes was gone, right. you know, counting their money off in the castle in Scotland. And then they just hired the Buggles to replace the other guys in Yes, as if it didn't matter. Right. As if the identity of the band well, was... Did uh, over a band like Pink Floyd. You know, they tour without Roger Waters, a guy they, who wrote most of their songs, it, you know? It's pathetic. And this was not supposed to be what alternative rock was about. We have Nirvana, you know, which remained the shining light, the paradigm, the band that wouldn't sell out, as well as the most artistically significant band of the alternative rock era. Then, of course, there's Courtney Love, <laughs> who we've always had some problems with. Courtney, now in need of serious dough, because in her numerous legal cases, she's run out of money. She has no money left, and she can't even pay her lawyers who are suing her. Yeah. You know, She owns 98% of Nirvana's publishing rights as the widow of Kurt Cobain, Kurt Cobain having written 98% of every original song that Nirvana published and recorded, and she has sold 25% of that 98% to a guy named Larry. <laughs> Who is Larry? Who the hell knows? He used to work at Virgin Records. Now he has this company called Primary Wave Music Publishing, and they have big goals. They have big goals. They want to introduce Nirvana to a new generation. Says Larry, we're going to remain very tasteful, and we're going to retain the spirit of Nirvana and take Nirvana places it's never been before. By that, I can just see the parenthetical. Horrifying. TV commercials, it's soundtracks. What, you know, the good news here, though, is that Grohl and Novoselic retain veto rights uh. over anything that they think would be in bad taste. And, you know, hopefully they'll keep Larry and Courtney in check. <laughs> yeah. We've got one other alternative rock icon that we're going to discuss later on in the show, and that's Pearl Jam, arguably the biggest. I mean, Nirvana may be the most artistically influential Pearl Jam probably the biggest selling of the alternative well, they're the, rock the bands. the only old rock band left standing in its original incarnation, more or less, minus a drummer or two, that can still fill arenas. Right. And, and they're going out on tour imminently, and uh, they've in got support, a new album out. In support of a new major label record. Exactly. So here's this band that, you know, famously took on Ticketmaster and famously tilted at every windmill. They were not going to be business as usual. They were going to stick it to the man. You know, their <laughs> deal had lapsed. They have a new recording contract with another major label, who? J Records, Clive Davis's, Clive Davis. uh, you know, one of the most notorious labels for the practice of payola 
every shady deal you can come up with in the music industry, Clive Davis being the guy who wrote the book on it going back to the 60s, and uh, it makes no sense. Well, you know, why would Pearl Jam sign this label? It makes perfect sense in a way, Jim, though. They've been away for four years. Everybody turned around, and all these bands looked at what happened to the Pixies last yeah, summer. Yeah, they were all looking at the they Pixies. They looked at the Pixies reuniting, not recording a shred of new music. Basically, the original lineup going back on the road, playing 15-year-old never were hits, probably should have been hits back in the late 80s, early 90s, but never were, suddenly making more money than ever. All these alternative rock bands going, wow, there's a nostalgia circuit for the stuff that we did 15 years ago. Hey, I was there the first time. I have no nostalgia. <laughs> I don't want to go back. All right, that's Neil Young with a brand new album that he recorded in a span of three weeks, beginning March 30th, completed only a few days ago, is going to be streaming on his website this week, is going to be released as a digital album on Tuesday, and is going to be in record stores in a couple of weeks as a full-fledged CD. Yeah, Bill Bentley at uh, Warner Brothers just told me the other day that uh, when's it going to arrive in stores? We're making them as fast as we can, <laughs> as soon as the, the, the machines are done spitting them out. This is a guerrilla-style record, Living With War. Neil Young had a lot on his mind, coming off a, a genteel and introspective, beautiful record, Prairie Wind, and then the beautiful documentary Jonathan Demme shot of that concert he did in Nashville, uh, that came out as a movie, Heart of Gold, and shifting gears right away into this heartfelt rant about uh, the war in Iraq, his feelings about the state of the world, articulated very bluntly in that song, Let's Impeach the President. That song was literally written and recorded in a day. Uh, one take. Neil's not mincing words. Uh, this is not new in his career, Greg. On May fifteenth, 1970, 11 days after the National Guard shot four students to death at Kent State University during protests against the war in Vietnam, Young entered the studio with Crosby, Stills, and Nash, and he recorded a song that he had written through teary eyes in a burst of inspiration when Crosby handed him a magazine, news magazine, with that famous photograph of the young girl pining Madonna-like, Pieta-like, over a dead classmate. And it was Ohio. Within a week of the recording, it was on the top of the charts, number one single in the country. An incredibly subtle and emotional explosion of rage at lives lost for no good reason at the hands of Tin Soldiers and Nixon. So now, 37 years later, almost exactly to the day, Young is moved by the war in Iraq. He's already being vilified 
by the right-wing blogosphere and championed by the left-wing, all the anti-war sites. But the fact is, Neil's politics are screwy. They always have been. He's a hippie icon, a product of the 60s, but by no means a knee-jerk leftist. Yes, he attacked the 37th president in Ohio, but in Campaigner, a song from the same period, he sang, Even Richard Nixon Has Got Soul. (laughs) He tore the first President Bush a new b-hole in Rockin' in the Free World, <laughs> mocking the idea of, you know, you're giving the homeless man a thousand points of light. Right. How's that helping him? But he famously championed Ronald Reagan. He genuinely loved Reagan and said, quote, yes, he's a trigger-happy cowboy, but the Russians and the Chinese need that. Basically, whatever he sees on the TV in front of him, whatever it prompts as a, an emotional reaction, that's what he Mm-hmm. Gets excited about. And so Young has recorded nine originals and an incredible gospel cover, a hundred member gospel choir singing America the Beautiful to end the album, turned it out in no time at all as these recording projects go and is putting it on the market. I think this is unprecedented since Ohio 37 years ago. I can only call it a punk rock record, Jim. Well, he, uh, he calls recorded it... with a bass player yeah. <laughs> and, and a drummer, a power trio. Bass, drums, guitar. Yep, and, and straight on, uh, what's he call it on his website? And Neil calls it metal folk yeah. protest music. <laughs> and it's he, a perfect description of the it, record. It absolutely is. A lot of one-take type stuff. I mean, really raw stuff. The drums... And and the guitar are on an even plane with the voice. It's almost yeah. like a shootout between these instruments and his voice fighting for supremacy in the mix. And it creates this really amazing frontal velocity that you don't yeah. get with Crazy Horse. With Crazy Horse, you get this sort of ebb and flow and this epic feel. These are just punches to the face. Well, yeah, and to drive that home, the difference between this and a Crazy Horse electric album, he's got, I think, the best use of horns he's ever had in his career. This soulful horn section being used in that great Motown Stax Volt way to emphasize the words. Well, when it, he has something he wants to sing, he's got a great army of backing vocalists and these horns. Yeah, it's this guy Tommy Bray. Who the heck is Tommy Bray? Some guy he got from Vegas uh, you know, really? to, to show up in a couple of horn sessions. I thought it was like there's no credits, obviously, and there's very little information yet about this except on his own website, so I thought it was like the Memphis Horns or something. It's it's Neil in a rhythm section, and then he called his horn guy in, and basically these are live (laughs) takes. I mean, this was the band in the room recording these songs pretty much live. I mean, there was very little overdubbing. Then he went to L.A., recorded this 100-voice choir, which, as you mentioned, did a spectacular job on that acapella version of America the Beautiful and added their voices to uh, Let's Impeach. Can you imagine 100 voices singing Let's Impeach the President for Lying? Let's Impeach the President for Lying. You know, I think there's a subtlety in the lyrics of Ohio where he's not really taking sides. uh, He's just talking about the tragedy of it. And I think all throughout Living with War, he is stepping back and looking at the bigger picture. He's talking about crying widows of American soldiers who've been killed over in Iraq. He's also talking about Iraqi children who are going to be scarred for life. There's an ambiguity and there's a humanist perspective mm-hmm. about just the pain and suffering on all sides. Yeah, and and I think what makes it work is that it's not sanctimonious. It's not presented as, as a sort of precious kind of listen to me, I've got the answers, here's my folk anthem for the troubles of today, a la that Pink song. Yeah, yeah. The letter to the president, very sanctimonious, or very arguably, self-righteous. arguably a, a record we're going to talk about later <laughs> by another band uh, from Seattle. We shall talk about that. But here, I, I think just the pure passion, the conviction of those performances, it sends chills up your spine to hear a guy truly meaning what he says in these songs. And, Absolutely. And that's, that's what's really heartfelt about it. We don't usually review records in the top of the show here at the news segment, but this is partly a news story, partly a review. 
I think this is a record that everybody's got to hear. And since Young is streaming it for free on his website, you can judge for yourself. Uh, I would say buy it, but he's giving it to you for free before you invest your money, either downloading it elsewhere or buying it at a record store. This, I think, immediately shoots to the top of the list as must-hear albums about the current crisis in well, Iraq. I agree. I, I think you should buy one and then buy one for Don Rumsfeld, too. Send <laughs> one to him. Dick Cheney deserves a copy of this as well. With this caveat, you're not going to get a pristine, uh, you know, pure production here. This is a very raw, grainy, kind of, in some cases, ugly-sounding record. And I, and I say that with all due respect. I think it's a wonderful record. This is the equivalent of side two of Russ Never Sleeps. There you go. Really ugly, overdriven guitar sound and, and just really powerful music. Let's hear some of Neil. Uh, this is a song called Shock and Awe. You mentioned it earlier. Back in the days of shock and awe, we came to liberate them all. Thousands of children scarred for life. Millions of tears for a soldier's wife. Both sides are losing. Not being pro or con, he's just being, you know, people are being hurt here, and I think it's wrong. That's Shock and Awe from Living With War by Neil Young. Great new album. Buy it from Jim. Buy it from Greg. It's Sound Opinions on Chicago Public Radio. We're going to be back with uh, a live performance from Clap Your Hands, Say Yeah. And later on, reviews of new albums by Bruce Springsteen and Pearl Jam. Children. 
Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott of the Chicago Tribune. My partner is Jim DeRogatis of the Chicago Sun-Times. We're here with the members of Clap Your Hands, Say Yeah, a band from uh, Brooklyn, primarily. And uh, Alec, Lee, Robbie, Tyler, Sean, welcome to the show. Glad to have Thank you guys you here. Thank you very much. Thanks. Thanks One of you guys me. still lives in Philadelphia, though, right? Yeah, I do. Oh, there you go. Well, you want to keep distance from the rest of the guys? <laughs> <laughs> nah, I just like Philadelphia. It's he likes city. his creative space. Great that's, city. <laughs> that's Alec. And a uh, quick backstory on you guys. First gig in early 2004 in New York City, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. And uh, put out an album last year. The story from there is just one of those internet phenomenons that everybody's been talking about. You basically have sold about 100,000 records on your own without the assistance of a major label, without any radio airplay outside of college radio, without any MTV video, uh, and are now touring the country playing sold-out shows around the country. That's a pretty rapid and dizzying story. Two years Mm -hmm. for a band to have that kind of success without the assist of any kind of a record company, really. Have you guys processed that at all and figured out, (laughs) how did that happen? You look a little (laughs) shell-shocked, yeah. I don't know. As far as I'm concerned, it's been... Not anticipated to any degree, you know, any sort of popular acceptance is never necessarily anticipated. But, you know, we've all been working on music for quite a while, and the idea of actually having a good idea what you're doing is something that I like to stick stick to. And to put out this album as a first album and to have a pretty good degree of self-confidence that, you know, it'll take one way or another... I think that's kind of the bottom line. It's the moral of the story. Well, Alec, question I have. I know you're sick to death of talking about the Internet hype, but it really has become a huge example. We had Professor Lawrence Lessig on the show a couple of weeks ago. He is the, you know, the authority on copyright control and was, was citing you guys. It was kind of cool to hear this guy who's argued before the Supreme Court citing you guys as a sterling example. So I have two questions along those lines of the way you built up the, the, the audience. Number one is just practicality. People would discover your music on the web, and send you a couple of bucks, and you would mail them the CD. Now, you were doing the artwork yourselves, doing the shipping yourselves. How did the division of labor actually break down, and how many, you know, how many paper cuts did you guys suffer in the process of going to the post office all that, and, and loading these envelopes and <laughs> folding the CD covers? <laughs> yeah, we, uh, we all did kind of different things. Robbie did a lot of the artwork. Mm-hmm. Um, Lee and I did some some of the computer stuff. Answering the emails and such. Yeah. And um, we all kind of shared shipping duties. duties. Because there's <laughs> nothing worse than that line at the post office, right? I mean, that's hell. We're the worst ones at the post office, too, because we had like 100 boxes and uh-huh. everybody got pissed at us. Well, and the <laughs> things that's impressive is Prince tried to do this a couple of years ago. He put out a box set himself. Right. But it was a complete disaster. And he couldn't <laughs> process the orders. And he was charging, I don't know, 40, 45 bucks for this box set that he put out and was not processing the orders in any kind of a timely fashion. I mean, people were getting the box like a year later. And then people wound up hating him. Yeah. So I, I get the sense that you guys were a little more prompt in, in returning well, your emails and getting actually, stuff out. There were some... Uh... We missed a couple. <laughs> <laughs> we missed a bunch. So it shows people coming up to you saying, hey, I sent you my 10 bucks. Yeah. We usually just assume that they had sent us the money and gave them the CD. If that uh-huh. Because also, you're an honest uh, band. We also yeah. hadn't reached it wasn't too bad. status in those first two months. That's yeah, true. It wasn't so it was exactly. much slower. Well, yeah. well, the other question that inevitably comes off of this, so people have discovered your music on the web by file sharing or downloading off of a place like MySpace, right? So why do you think then people invested by sending you money for the actual copy of the disc? Because, you know, in theory, the major labels say, if you've already got the music, you're getting it for free, you're not going to buy it. 
time and again, we're seeing that that's not the case. Every download equals a lost sale. And obviously that was not the case. Yeah, I don't really believe that. I I think just if people really like the music, they want to support it. And the downloading is just sort of a way of sampling it. Why don't we have them play a song? Yeah, sure. Um, Let's play in this Home on Ice. And uh, are we ready?
Very cool, guys. Thanks. Let's clap your hands, say yeah. You're listening to Sound Opinions. That was a song from uh, the debut record, and it's an amazing record that was made for, uh, for pennies. Compared to the Kanye West record, which I think cost about two, $2 million, you guys spent about uh, one two-hundredth of that, somewhere in that range. Basically money out of your own pocket. Yeah, uh, yeah something like five to 10000 yeah, yeah, which is ridiculous. I mean, no, you know, you couldn't get a guy at a major label to spend that much money on a rhythm section, a snare drum sample. That's what the guy who gets you know? hired to tune <laughs> yeah. the snare drum gets paid. Exactly. You know? Lots of bands looking at you guys and saying, man, how do they do that? Is it something that you're happy with, looking back on a record that you spent $10,000 on? Is it the kind of record you wanted to make or had to make because of the budgetary limitations? I mean, looking back on it, would you uh, like to have done something different with it? Well, you know, I like the idea of limitations, and I think, you know, I probably had to make and wanted to make all at the same time. And uh, you work with a lot of money or you work with very little money and you try to make something of it one way or another. And I, you know, I think it worked for a start. But you guys had an, uh, a vision going in. I mean, you weren't just doing demos of songs that then became an album. I mean, it's, it's an album with a beginning, a middle, and an end. And, and, you know, there's that introductory kind of piece that brings you into the record. And then there's these little detours throughout it. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, there's this notion that in the age of downloading, the album is a done deal. You know, and then there's other bands that say, look, I still love the records that take you from point A to point Z on this journey. I mean, did you have a full vision of what you wanted to do with this record? Um, a certain feeling for what it might turn out to be um as far as a vision in that sort in that sense in that detailed sense not exactly i mean some of the stuff like the first song was kind of put together near the end of the album you know stuff mm-hmm. like that it's just things that you know you decide will make the album feel complete to you and that was mm-hmm. that's the idea of the vision uh, to me and, and, and to follow up on Jim's question, um, does that make sense in the way people are processing music today? It seems like they're getting it in bits and pieces, and, but clearly you had a bigger idea about how you wanted this album to be. Yeah, I like the to. idea of albums, you know, like, you know, you're listening to Another Green World or something like that. It's just, you know, feels whole, just the same way as I like the idea of a song feeling whole and not scattered into parts. That's so. a, a good reference point. Another Green World is the third of Brian Eno's pop albums. Mm-hmm. Um Usually influential around the New Age movement. Uh, new Age. <laughs> Usually influential around the New Wave movement in, in the mid-70s. And now influential around the New no. Yeah, yeah. Well, he floated off into the lilac yeah. ether of the New Age movement. <laughs> but there were those four records where he rocked. And, of course, then he went on to work with the Talking Heads. Now, that's a, a comparison you guys have gotten a lot. In part, I guess, Alec, because of your vocal. But beyond that superficial similarity, there's a similar, you know, what you're doing with the rhythms. Our, our poor drummer stuck here in the back. He can't say anything. We've walled him in. <laughs> You know, that Spartan New York feel of the new wave movement. It's the sound of a subway train hurtling down the tracks at full speed. Nothing's going to derail it, you know. It's just economical. It's precise. It's moving straight forward. And sometimes you have three rhythm guitars going. Talk about that and that sound in that period, if it was an influence. Yeah, I mean, you know, anytime talking about influences, like, it's just a matter of saying, you know, this person was just as influential as, you know, to me, I know as much, you know, like about Louis Armstrong or like Johnny Cash's records, Mm -hmm. and they're just as influential to me as 
as Brian Eno or Lou Reed or whoever. But uh, yeah, sure. I mean, it's, uh, for a certain period of my life, just like anybody else, like you know, sometimes it starts to kick in that that you focus your attention on somebody maybe a little bit more, and then you know you you back off, and then eventually it all just kind of gets into the pot together and comes and spits itself out the way it is. Yeah, no, I know it's a, it's one of those damn rock critic questions. But there was, you know, when you say you like Brian Eno, there's certain philosophies that come along. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I agree with that. I think the idea of you know understanding the philosophy of any producer, like uh, you know Phil Spector, for example, is you. It's it's important to focus on these certain you know these details, and then ex- exactly like any songwriter to try to like you know shape them in your own head and just push them forward that way. Eno is very, very influential in that respect, I think, as far as his albums are concerned. They're some of the most exciting albums to listen to, Mm -hmm. um, sonically. Yeah, you still discover stuff after 100,000 listens. I still do anyway. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of cool the way you achieved that, too, because this album was sort of recorded in bits and pieces, right? It wasn't just one long recording session. It was kind of over a period of time that you recorded this record. Yeah, it's kind of like, I think we, we laid down the live tracks and then kind of came back to certain overdubs here and there. So, yeah, over over the period of, I think, about a year. And, Alec, I hate to make you do it, but you have to tell the story about how the band got its name because people, the first thing they say is, wow, that's an interesting name. Do you want to tell it, Tyler? Uh, we were together for, like, two months, and then we got a, our first show, and we didn't have a name, and we just saw it painted on a wall in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. Um, Did you ever figure out why it was there? No. <laughs> <laughs> What Eno would call a happy accident. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, how about another song, guys? All right. Okay. Uh, sh- can we hear your clicks? Okay. All right. Okay. <laughs> hold on. Hold on. Test. All right. Yeah. So much different than me this I know.
Great stuff. Clap your hands, say yeah on Sound Opinions on Chicago Public Radio. It's funny, Robbie, I'm flashing on my own parents. I grew up in New York, and I I never forget my mom coming to my first gig at CBGB's. And we're sitting here, and your folks have come to see you. You know, I know it may be uncool and un-rock and roll, but I will never forget my mom being there at CBGB, you know, like in in February on a Tuesday at 1 in the morning. This is kind of an unsavory place, Jim. But, no, you know, you're not in bad company, man, because I interviewed Joey Ramone's mom, you know, and she was telling me, I used to drive the boys all the time in the station wagon. It was, you know, I would take... Take them down to that CBGB whatever club, and it was. I was a little afraid to park there. She made us hot cocoa after our first show. So all right. Made it all so, so you got. You, you all have to feel somewhat vindicated, right? Because I mean, you were throwing away your lives and not. You, you met and in, your money. You met in college, right? They had invested in these educations, and then you're going to throw all that away on this rock and roll thing. But now it's like you know you're selling records and selling out rooms and. Yeah, maybe we did learn something in school. (laughs) (laughs) It's been a pleasure, fellas. Thank you very much. Thanks. Cool. Thanks, guys. To hear more of Clap Your Hands, Say Yeah's exclusive performance on Sound Opinions, you can go to our website, soundopinions.org. We're going to be back in a couple of seconds with reviews from the newest by Pearl Jam and Bruce Springsteen. We'll be right back on Chicago Public Radio. You and Tom to the prom, camel kids, crucifix. Everyone's the same and on and on Emerging from the football stands Clinging to his broken hand It's over, I've seen it all before Flying less in tattered dress, sunburnt chest. You will pay for your excessive charm. That folky is not Pete Seeger, but in fact Bruce Springsteen singing very earnestly through clenched teeth. He never sings any album. other way, though, does he? <laughs> yeah. Well, he sounds pretty earnest on that song. That is an anthem, and he's treating it with great reverence. We Shall Overcome, Pete Seeger popularized that song to a great extent decades ago. Springsteen now recapturing it for a new generation as part of an entire album of Pete Seeger songs that he has recorded Everybody expecting a new E Street Band record from Springsteen, but no. He goes back in the studio, not with the E Street Band, but with a, an ensemble of string players, bluegrass players, fiddlers, uh, mandolinists, banjoists. Hoedown uh, Not a rock time. and roll band, and has a jolly old time at his farmhouse in New Jersey over a three-day recording session spread out over several years. Uh, individual recording sessions done very quickly 
but over a span of time, the Seeger Sessions, Bruce Springsteen's new album, totally unexpected, the first time that he's ever devoted an entire album to another songwriter's songs. Well, yeah, and everybody figured after 2005's solo album, which was a pretty understated affair, a lot of people considered it in the Nebraska Tom Joad mode. Right. After Devils and Dust, they figured, oh, it's time for the band again. Time, you know, call Clarence. And he apparently is writing E Street Band songs, but he decided to uh, finish this project first, apparently maybe trying to get it out while Pete Seeger was still alive to be able to hear it. Pete's uh, like 85, right? Yeah, well, I think he's turn- Pete Seeger is turning 87 in the month of May. And Springsteen figured maybe maybe he'd want to hear some of this music. He initially came to Seeger to record We Shall Overcome for a tribute album uh, to Seeger in the late 90s and became intrigued by Pete Seeger's back catalog that he began investigating his music further and said, hey, this guy really has something that I had not appreciated before. Most people know Springsteen as a devotee of Woody Guthrie, just like one of his heroes, Bob Dylan. But he discovered in Pete Seeger a similarly-minded rebel. A lot of people may not realize that Seeger uh, was blacklisted in the 50s for his leftist, communist, quote-unquote, viewpoints in the 50s. And he was very active in the anti-war and civil rights movements in the 60s. And also known as the guy who tried to pull the plug on Dylan when he went electric (laughs) at Newport in the the mid-60s. So it should be noted that Seeger has his conservative them rock and rollers can't steal our music side to him as well. For sure. But here's Springsteen paying homage to uh, Seeger with a collection of Pete Seeger songs. And here's one of them we're going to play for you. Kind of a, a rollicking gospel vibe in, in this record. Some Celtic overtones. Not overly reverent versions of these songs in, in contrast to what we heard with We Shall Overcome. Here's a song that Seeger popularized, Oh Mary, Don't You Weep, on Sound Opinions. Springsteen covering a song that was popularized, though not written, by uh, Pete Seeger, Oh Mary, Don't You Weep No More. A lot of the material on this record, 15 tracks if you count the two bonus tracks, is uh, traditional material. It goes way, way back. Greg, you and I, since we have started doing this show seven and a half, going on eight years ago, have been fighting about Bruce Springsteen. I don't think there's ever been an album that has better made my central point about Springsteen, my central complaint, that the man (laughs) is an ultra boring, arch-conservative than this record. I think this album is an incredible blown opportunity. 
Seeger wrote songs, originals, like the Union championing song, Which Side Are You On? And he wrote the, the scathing Vietnam allegory, Waist Deep in the Big Muddy. Springsteen doesn't go anywhere near those songs. Instead, you know, we hear him singing, I got a mule and its name is Sal, 15 miles to the Erie Canal. I mean, I don't want <laughs> to hear that. That's a pretty good imitation. If this was... Hoot Nanny Night on a Tuesday in February at the Old Town School of Folk Music, you would pay no attention to this record. The fact that it is your idol, Bruce Springsteen, I want to hear you weasel out of the complete, utter worthlessness of this disc and defend it. Because well, it really is. An, an abs- I, I do not need to hear Springsteen singing Old Dan Tucker. Let us not forget that you have not been a complete Springsteen uh, naysayer. In fact, you gave no, Devils and no. Dust a better review than I did. I did. I, I, liked I didn't Devils. like Devils I liked and Dust. I Devils and Dust. And I did not. The one thing I do like about this record, and I wish Springsteen would pursue this thread further, is that it is incredibly underproduced. He doesn't yeah. overthink it. I'll give you that. And, and it's upbeat. You would yeah. think Springsteen covering... We heard some rollicking yeah. good times. I mean, there's a DVD that accompanies this record. And Springsteen's down in shots as he's performing some of these songs. Yeah. So he's having a good time. It is a hoot nanny. They're sitting around in this big room playing instruments in real time. I really appreciate Springsteen's Nebraska album for that reason. I think he took a, a dire wrong turn with Born in the USA with these incredibly overproduced keyboard-heavy albums in the 80s and really hasn't been the same since. And I miss kind of that more off-the-cuff feel that he got, say, in a Nebraska album. I think he returns to some of that on this record. And for that reason, I think it's Springsteen's best record in a good oh, long time. Oh, you're nuts. You're nuts. Listen, look at what Billy Bragg and Wilco did with those two albums where they took lyrics by Woody Guthrie and they added music. They made him vital, relevant, and very much of the moment, significant today. Here is Springsteen with an opportunity to say this is what's worth valuing from the legacy of Pete Seeger, and he, in this pathetically transparent attempt to put himself in the same pantheon as Seeger. You know, Springsteen is like an old man sitting on the porch trying to think about his <laughs> legacy. You know, I'm not only is it enough now for him to have been one of the reigning baby boom superstars of the whole rock era, he wants to now be known as, you know, like founding key godfather-like figure well, in the entire American songbook. And he chooses the very worst of Seeger oh. instead of, I mean, you know, how powerful could Waist Deep in the Big Muddy be? It could be up there with Neil Young's Life During War now, but no, Springsteen blows the opportunity and sings, you know, Froggy Went to Courtin'. Bruce Springsteen sings Froggy Went to Courtin'. Hey, Dylan, you know... You don't want to hear that. You you can't defend that. Dylan recorded that song on his acoustic records in the early 90s, too, and I would compare it very much to those acoustic records that got Dylan back on the right track that he recorded in the early 90s, basically covering some of the songs that really inspired him as as a young person to even play music in the first place. And, Jim, you're missing the point completely here. There are political songs on this record. I mean, how, how else to describe something like Mrs. McGrath? That's one of the most uh, beautiful and potent anti-war songs you could possibly want. If this wasn't Springsteen, yeah. if this was the guitar teacher who loves Seeger from yeah. the Old Town School of Folk Music, would you give any thought to this album? Sure, why not? No, you wouldn't. No, you wouldn't. You wouldn't. You know it's true. Because you've got six of those sitting in the mail. And the, and the fact that it is Springsteen and the fact that he is speaking to a large audience means something. The other thing you is forget... Is it ever a shrinking audience, is that, actually? Is that the Woody Guthrie tribute that Wilco and Billy Bragg did, they also went for the non-political stuff. They went for the, you know, the California Stars type of no, song. No, I know. No, That's no. a beautiful song. But they, they completed went for the They completed Guthrie's thought, you know, and they took it somewhere new, musically. This is musically conservative and lyrically conservative for the most 
most part. I mean, you, you choose one example of one song that's got a political subtext, and that's that's rare on this album. It's 15 tracks, and those are not, you know, like I said, where is which side are you on? Where is Waist Deep in the Big Muddy? Those I would say I, I would say Mrs. McGrath is a political song. I'd say John Henry's a pretty darn political song. You, you talk about your working man songs, Pay Me My, my Money Down, given what's happened in Katrina. I uh, think you're stretching. I don't see what the mule named Sal in the Erie Canal has to do with anything. There's a wide variety of songs. He doesn't have to have <laughs> every song doesn't have to be political. And you're the fact I'm that no, you I'm can't just, hear the politics in this record is really disturbing. It's, it seems saying. to me like you're missing the subtlety of some of these songs. Well, I, I don't like Pete Seeger to begin with, and then I don't like well, Springsteen that, well, covering him. Now, it. if Springsteen had made a record of covers of Bob Seeger, I think that could have actually <laughs> been been uh, you know really worthy, and I would have applauded that. This is a trash it record on the patented sound opinions. Buy it, burn it, trash it scale, Greg. And I did listen to this a dozen times because I do prepare myself to do battle with you over Springsteen. I have no use for this record. It's a trash well, it record. I haven't really been a big fan of uh, any Springsteen record in about uh, 20 years. I would say the last Springsteen record that I really, really liked was probably Nebraska, and I'd say this is, a, this is the best record since then. Which is? Uh, a buy it, a burn this it. This is a, a buy it record. I think we can go over over about this forever, but we have other records to talk yeah. about here on Sound Opinions and possibly disagree with, like this one. That's Eddie Vedder and Pearl Jam with a song called Worldwide Suicide because Vedder still sings as if he sometimes has marbles in his mouth. I'll tell you what that line is. It's a shame to awake in a world of pain. What does it mean when war has taken over? Yes, folks, the new self-titled Pearl Jam is another anti-war album in large part. Not entirely, but there are several songs on Pearl Jam's first album in four years, eighth studio album overall that take on the war in Iraq. You know a band when it's been around for 15 years and it's on its eighth album when it self-titles that disc? Pearl Jam, the band, gives us Pearl Jam, the album. You know they're trying to signal something, and what they're trying to say here is, we have been reborn. It's been a long period of inactivity. Pearl Jam never disappeared, never broke up, but it's been longer and longer between albums. Early on, after their initial flush of success, their debut album, 10, in 1991, having sold 10 million, almost, copies in the United States alone, they've never regained that peak But they have kept a very large following, as we alluded to earlier, the largest following of any of the alternative rock survivors. Pearl Jam has kept it, has been able to sell out arenas throughout all that time, has suffered highs and lows emotionally, losing the fight with Ticketmaster, for example, the deaths of several fans over at the Roskilde Festival. They've stayed together through it all, and now they're giving us this new album. And and what are they saying? We'll talk about that in a minute. But let's hear a track from Pearl Jam. This is called Life Wasted. It's the first track on the album on Sound Opinions. (laughs) 
Life Wasted from Pearl Jam, new self-titled record, their eighth album. They're back again with an arena rocking vibe on this record. Their strongest rock record since that era in terms of, okay, let's crank up the guitars. Let's start to motivate again in terms of being a rock band as opposed to this more introspective ballad-heavy band that has been the modus operandi for the last couple of records. So it's nice to hear that Stone Gossard and Mike McCready can still crank up a nice storm on their guitars. Yeah, they were, but, you know, good guitar pair mm-hmm. between their their trading off on lean rhythm and still a great rhythm section. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of propulsion on this record, but I think, uh, Greg, it's only half a rock record. They kind of sucker you in because the first of the first six tracks, five of them are really up-tempo, very quick, some of them as short as two minutes, Yeah, period. You know, this has always been a band that's been at its best when it's been moving the quickest. And then, unfortunately, it's arena ballad time, (laughs) because the whole second half of the album devolves into that that horrible, lugubrious mid-tempo. They don't sustain it. You're right. The energy is is there incrementally after that first burst of energy, and I would have liked to have heard an entire album along those lines. They don't quite pull it off here. I think there's one nice moment where the, the more spacious kind of music takes over near the end of the album, a song called Come Back, which is a, a pretty pretty nice ballad and, and a big one. You can see it becoming sort of one of those arena rock moments on this record. But I don't hear enough of those moments. I don't hear enough of those hooks. Once they were very adept at. You know, they've never come close to, you know, matching, let alone topping that first album, well, 10. I, I actually think that Verses and Vitalogy actually improved upon the first record, and I like some of the moments on the recent records. But again, they have become more of a to my mind, a singles band. And it's kind of odd to say because they never had singles per se, but Mm. they string together their best songs in a show. They can still pull it off. They're still a very reliable arena act. But as an album band, they really have not made a great record beginning to end since Vitology in 1994. And this, again, is about half of a good Pearl Jam record. Got some nice moments on it, but not not sustained. I I was expecting dire, dreadful things because I think Pearl Jam has completely lost its relevancy. You know, they've always cited The Who as their model, and they were clearly steeped in classic rock more than any of the uh, alternative era bands. And I think, in fact, much more something like Bachman Turner Overdrive or Grand Funk Railroad. This was just a fairly generic arena rock band. You know, right. they weren't the who of their generation. They were the Grand Funk Railroad. And at least when they move fast, you don't get stuck on Eddie's lyrics. Because in stark contrast to Neil Young's lyrics, which are obviously very heartfelt and sometimes poetic on his anti-war album, you know, Vedder, I, I quote, 
It's a shame to wake in a world of pain. What does it mean when war has taken over? Gee, I don't know, Eddie. Why don't you tell us? Um, you know, I, I'm just thankful that the first half of it rocks. That's not huge praise. I, I would say it's a, a burn it record for that reason alone. You could you could make a decent EP of five songs on this disc, and, and other than that, it's not worth your time. Yeah, I, I would throw in, uh, you know, one of, like, as I said, one of the ballads I think is, is, is very strong. Comeback is, is definitely worth uh, checking out. A couple of the early rockers on the record. Inconsistent record. It's a burn it in keeping with uh, tradition. The last uh, decade of Pearl Jam records, I think, are very much in that same pocket. Some good stuff, some not so good stuff, not particularly consistent. We've got a great show coming out next week as well uh, for you. We've got an album dissection, a tradition at Sound Opinions, where we look at a classic album and tell you how it was made and why it still holds up. I haven't done that in a while. It's our first for public radio. It's going to be fun. And uh, it's the 40th anniversary of a great record. And that's the reason we want to look at the Beatles' Revolver. That's going to be on next week's show. The Beatles' best album. I would agree, although a lot of people would disagree. We're going to make the case next week, Jim. One of the best albums ever made, period. On the way out, we got some people to thank. Tori Malatia is our executive producer, and we love him dearly. Todd Bachman is our managing producer and director. Matt Spiegel is our producer. Jason Saldana and Robin Lynn are our associate producers. We get legal assistance from Dino Armiros, technical assistance from Joe Dassault. Mary Gaffney recorded Clap Your Hands, Say Yeah at the uh, Jim and K Maybe Performance Studio. And you can check in with us through the rest of the week at soundopinions.org on the website. Send us some feedback. Send us uh, corrections. Send us angry diatribes in defense of Pete Seeger. Uh, we're happy to hear it all. Thanks for listening. 